Welcome to Digisection, a podcast about building great digital health companies and the strategies behind them. My name's Oscar. I'm a physician, inventor, and entrepreneur, and I'll be your host. The following is a conversation with Nathan Trelor, the President and Chief Operations Officer at Orbita. Orbita specializes in developing conversational AI for healthcare and life sciences. Their products help healthcare organizations like Mayo Clinic, Master Health, and American Red Cross. We talked with Nate about the digital front door for providers, building voice AI teams, and whether bots should go to med school. I hope you'll enjoy it. Hi, Nate. It's so great to connect with you. It's my pleasure to host you in this second episode of DG Section Podcast. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Oscar. It's an honor to be uh, right up the front of the list of people participating. <laughs> you were always on, on the top of this list, Nate. And whenever I talk or think about virtual health assistance, I always think about Orbita and you being one of the pioneers in this market. I think you told me before that you're already into this path for last six years, right? Yeah, uh, I would say in the voice assistive side, maybe more like four years, but it, it feels like much longer. Um, a lot of things have happened in the last four years. We've met before on many other events, conferences. These were, you know, both voice tech and healthcare events but we've never actually had the chance to have a longer conversation. So that's why I was so excited to talk with you today and have a deep dive into voice AI, chatbots, and what's next in healthcare. But let us start for a second with the very beginning of your story and company. What made you to start Orbita? So Orbita was founded by myself and uh, Bill Rogers, uh, my partner and CEO of Orbita. And uh, Bill Kava and Alpesh Patel, those four principal mm -hmm. founders in the early days. And our idea at the time was to build a company that could support the creation of these connected experiences, um, this new Internet of Things world that um, still to this day is a very large and, and booming industry. But we, we were not in healthcare when we started this company. We were more of a technology idea that became a digital healthcare company. What we realized and was that where we are right now in the evolution of the internet is in what you might call the third wave. If the first wave was the static PC web browser, second wave was mobile. The third wave is this world of connected self. Think of Fitbits and connected health care devices, et cetera. What we realized is that the tools and technology and capabilities that were required in the first two waves of the internet maybe didn't apply, although in concept there were some similarities. And uh, so we built our technology in the earliest days really to help orchestrate the collection of data and the user experiences around this new idea of connected self at the highest level. Um, and then uh, as we got into the business, we realized that, and this may be advice for any of the listeners out there that have their own startup company, is that it's much more important to fall in love with a problem 
than with your solution. So we realized that what we had something pretty compelling, but we hadn't really tested the market to see what are the most important problems out there that we, with our capabilities, can solve. So if you move forward a couple of years into the business, we settled on healthcare because we recognize that globally, and in particular in this country, there are a lot of challenges related to healthcare, delivering it effectively and efficiently. That technology had the power and potential to have a big impact. Um, digital health technology as a category was something we became interested in for um, business reasons, for technical reasons, and for personal reasons. I may have shared with you that I had, um, you know, at aging loved ones, I was a caretaker for aging loved ones and had the experience of trying to do this um, with somebody who wasn't living in my house, right? And trying to help my parents, in this case, my mother who um, has since passed away. She was trying to live her life at home with many medical issues. And um, I found personally, even with all the resources and the family that I had, that it was very difficult to care for my mother. And all I could think of is what, what it must be like with somebody who's trying to do that with her family is on the other side of the country or on the other side of the world. And I said, well, is this hard for me? It must be extremely difficult for most of the world. And how can we help? So um, we settled on voice assistive technology in part because we were fascinated with it as a communication tool. We're fascinated with where it has and had come in terms of capabilities, the quality and efficacy of voice recognition, you know, the emergence of technologies like Amazon Alexa and the Google Assistant technology has shown that it really works. It works quite well. And um, it improved dramatically even just in the past five or six years. So um, we built interfaces between our core platform and these new form of connected devices, smart speakers, for example, and built applications experiences around them. That's how we got into the business. Uh, we, I remember going to a conference, um, it was before any of the voice conferences that, that you and I have met at came out. And it was a um, connected health conference or connected mobile health conference. And I did a presentation on the use of smart speakers for aging in place. We presented it and then within two or three months, we were able to put together relationships with the Mayo Clinic, with Amgen, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember, a few other major insurance companies. So there was a lot of interest in, in both curiosity and real perceived value in this. So that's so where we are right now, as a company, we are still running with our voice story, and we've expanded it to address um, different modalities, whether it's texting or interactive voice over a telephone or a smart speaker. We're not particularly prescriptive. This is an amazing story and, and how it developed, really. Um, could you tell us and our listeners, what is your main product right now? And uh, what is the one that you're particularly monetizing? Yeah, we have two main offerings. So we're, we're a technology platform for conversational AI and healthcare. And what we've done with that platform was we've made it possible to quickly build applications that are healthcare-centric and um, be able to quickly build the common experiences that you see in healthcare applications like assessments and surveys we talked about, yeah. question answering knowledge bases. These are the most common type of experiences, coaching applications, symptom triage, care management experiences. All of these are built into, templated into our platform. So we, we license that to our clients who are either 
health systems and or service providers to that industry that are trying to build these kind of applications. Primarily, we're a platform play, but around that, we've also prioritized specific solutions where we see the most relevance to this kind of technology. One is something we call the um, Orbita Engage, which uh, focuses on the digital front door of healthcare. This is user experiences, whether they're delivered as a bot or a voice experience, that are designed to help patients, actual and prospective patients, find services quickly, schedule appointments quickly, mm -hmm. get answers to basic questions very quickly, to get um, to be um, assessed, like a symptom triage, um, and do it through the power of a conversational agent that has both empathy and usability built into it. Um, and then we have a similar solution on the life science side, which is around patient engagement around certain branded drugs or conditions. And so our clients in that case are um, pharmaceutical companies, life science companies who are supporting a community or population of patients with a particular condition around a particular treatment or drug. You mentioned several times the word empathy. I understand that it's a critical part to building any kind of conversational experience. Could you enlarge what that means and how to really and truly build an empathetic chatbot? Yeah. Well, this whole idea of uh, conversational user experience design as its own discipline has taken on quite a bit of meaning in this new world that we're in. And uh, it really comes down to how its usability. And if you thought about it in the traditional sense of a website or an application that was all click and touch, it's about usability. The thing that's different about a, a bot or a virtual assistant is that it's emulating a human interaction. You can have bots that attempt to emulate a human interaction that do not succeed in engagement because they lack some aspect of the humanity of those interactions. And it can be as simple as um, you know, eliminating the robotic uh, expressions that you might see in some bots. And you, you can see them on a lot of the bots on, uh, on uh, commerce sites where they'll say, you know, it'll be actually branded. It might have a name, you know, Amy or uh, Oscar. <laughs> something like that. So, hello, this is Oscar. Um, how can I help you today? And well, it seems like it doesn't, it shouldn't matter that much. It does matter how much uh, empathy is built into the interaction. So if a patient is doing a survey, and this is a real example, we did a project where it was patients being cared for uh, struggling with rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of pain associated with RA. And it's a difficult condition. The bot was intended to check in on the patient, ask them how they're doing, and uh, there are a lot of different ways you can make, ask those questions. The traditional way is a form that the patient fills out, and it says, yeah. question one, how difficult was it to get dressed this morning on a scale of one to ten? Second question, how difficult is it to hold a glass of water, scale of one to ten? The patients who are filling out this form, it's literally a piece of paper. We'll fill it out and hand it into a nurse, and then it gets processed. But if you wanted to take that whole experience and put it into a bot, you could emulate those type of questions. But if you wanted to create a more conversational experience, you have to switch your thinking about it, build something that's got a little bit more empathy. Instead of saying, how difficult was it to get dressed this morning? You might say, good morning, Oscar. I'm just checking in. Did you have any trouble getting dressed this morning? Just like a human would, right? No, I didn't have any trouble. Well, that's great to hear, Oscar. Would you say it was easier today than it was yesterday or about the same? 
So you get the same information. It's all on how you ask the question. And so designing these conversational experiences to be a little bit more natural and empathetic is really how you get there. Have you observed anything like the maximal time of a conversation between a human and a machine? I'm asking this question as, for instance, in one of my studies I did with Cedar sinai back in LA times, we've noticed that anything that was longer than six and a half to say seven minutes was making a patient like to block and to say that they want to stop. So that was yeah. our biggest outcome that yeah. if anything is longer than six to seven minutes, then probably most people won't get through the full questionnaire. Yeah, honestly, I'm surprised it was that long. <laughs> I think uh, you know there's a lot of variability depending on the motivation of the patient, right? And the incentives such as they may have for participating in that conversation. Um, yes, we've observed that. And I wouldn't say that we've imposed a um, mm -hmm. rubric on how long a conversational experience should be, but most of them are less than a minute. Some of them are less than 30 seconds. Most voice experiences, conversational experiences are pretty transactional. In other words, like they'll say, I'm just going to ask you a few questions and then I'll be done or allow you to ask me a few questions. So I would say less than a minute is, you know, almost a rule of thumb. Now, there are exceptions, right? If you want to go through a lengthy symptom triage and you're starting with no information, mm -hmm. it can take a bit of time until you get to something that um, is meaningfully actionable. But six minutes is a long time. I know, yeah. And I heard that you're also working with Mayo Clinic. You mentioned Mayo before. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more about the like particular projects you were doing with Mayo? Was it also yeah. the, the front digital door? Yeah. Um, so our engagements with Mayo are uh, they're one of our earliest clients on the voice side, and I would classify them as digital front door solutions because mm -hmm. all they wanted, all we uh, agreed to focus on in the earliest days was can we build a voice experience that can be deployed to Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant that will answer questions mm -hmm. about healthcare issues to the general population. So it almost became an alternative to the other digital front doors that Mayo has, you know, their website or whatever mobile apps. Yeah. And so the idea was really, you know, in the early days, it was really an experiment to see, can Mayo deliver its content? It's high-value, clinically vetted content that's been developed over the course of the 140 years of existence of that health system and deliver it in a conversational way over an experience like Amazon Alexa. So that was the first thing that we did. More recently, actually just last spring, you know, working with the same team there, we developed a voice skill for Alexa for COVID FAQ. So just answer questions, ask the Mayo some questions about um, mm -hmm. the virus. That's a really great partnership. And I remember from one of your earlier presentations, it was probably in, in 2020, where you were showing some data and it said that over 49% of US consumers don't feel confident they could use virtual occur. Do you think it already changed during the pandemic? And do you think that the tech that you're building is actually shifting the situation and helping those patients get more confidence and, and get better care? Yeah, I think the answer is most definitely yes. Um, we've seen a big shift in attitude towards virtual assistive technology that I don't think is just going to be in existence during the, uh, the life of this pandemic, which we all hope will be ending soon. You know, it certainly validated it. 
our proposition, the things that we've been talking about, about why a virtual assistive um, healthcare agent uh, is useful, have not changed since prior to the pandemic. It's really about automating important workflows to create scale in a business and doing it with a user experience that doesn't sacrifice the engagement part. It doesn't sacrifice usability. It doesn't sacrifice empathy. So none of that has changed. I think what has changed is a couple of things. One is the recognition that if you put a bot up on a website or build an Alexa skill, doesn't necessarily help your outreach programs by itself, right? It's like anything. If you build it, you have to, you know, you can't be sure that people are going to find it and interact with it. Um, and you put it in conspicuous places on your website, they will interact with it, but it's still new and en new enough. Uh, bots even are still new enough that people are not gravitating to them. So their, their value proposition has not been fully realized. I would say even in uh, this new world of COVID, um, I've been much more implemented and deployed um, in the last 12 months than we saw in the previous 12 months or even more. But um, the opportunities are, are still there to be tapped. One of the common, well, I wouldn't say common, one of the emerging use cases that we're seeing is using uh, virtual assistive technology as part of a virtual waiting room for a telemedicine visit. So the use case is this, as more people sign up for telemedicine calls, um, there is a period of time while you're waiting where, and even before, where you can engage with that patient to collect information so that the telemedicine visit is as efficient as possible. Um, and you can think of them almost like in the virtual waiting room where a bot comes up like a nurse would and say, I just want to ask you a few questions about your, before I connect you with your doctor. Um, you know, maybe you can confirm your symptoms. Have you been staying on your medication? You know, you might ask a few uh, questions that are informed by the patient's record. But those use cases have become much more, I'll say, in the news because of, of the pandemic. Uh, what I was going to say before is that to get people connected to these virtual assistants, um, outreach campaigns have been around for a while. And the traditional way of doing outreach is either to make a phone call out of a call, a call center or to send an email and more recently text messages. Uh, but the text messages are usually, uh, we haven't heard from you type yes or no if you still need the appointment, right? Very transactional. What we're starting to do and see a lot of interest in is rather than just send them a text message, you send them a, a, an experience, a bot experience that says, hello, Oscar, um, you signed up for a COVID vaccine appointment a week from Monday. Do you still need the appointment? So it enters into a conversation with them. Yes, I do. Okay, have you... Uh, had COVID since you signed up for the appointment, because if you have, you're not eligible, right? You have to go through these eligibility checks. And doing this in a conversational agent has become much more of interest with the health systems in particular that we're working with, because frankly, they're doing a lot more of these outreach campaigns and they have serious scalability problems. So um, our priority is to help them scale, but also to do it in a way where patients remain actually engaged with the experience. The average response rate on outbound campaigns that are delivered just through email is something like 30%. It's not very high. Mm. Of course, that varies depending on the message. But what we've been able to do with our bot-based outreach campaigns is to be able to do it over a text message, 
an email and even voice over an interactive response system. It's the same experience just delivered across different channels. We can cascade them so that if it doesn't reach the patient as an email, we can try a text message. If it doesn't reach them with a text message, we can try a phone call. And we've been able to increase engagement rates to uh, well over 70% just doing that. Yeah, omnichannel telemedicine. That is the future That's right. that we have right yeah, now. And outreach. I've seen that you were also very active in research. Orbit has published, as I think, two or even three white papers last year. Yeah, our research really covers mostly um, the use cases that we're trying to support. Mm -hmm. You know, part of it is just like, what, what are the benefits of delivering a, virtually, a virtual assistive technology um, in the use case of a digital front door? What's the merits of using it for to drive uh, brand engagement? Where, what are the problems it's intended to solve? And what are some of the data that um, informs uh, the choice of a virtual assistive technology? So thematically, uh, what are the problems that these technologies are best aligned with, right? And we love you know, the possibilities that technologies like voice assistive technology represent, but it has to be aligned with a problem and it has to, you know, unfortunately also has to connect with a real, in some cases, economic impact for the folks that we're working with. And if we can't demonstrate that, demonstrate, um, you know, offloading a call center and reducing the number of, uh, you know, or reallocating call center staff so that they can be either working at the top of their license or allocated to other more pressing issues so that the bot can handle the basic stuff. Like just, do you still need your appointment? You don't need a medical degree to ask a question like that, right? By the way, should bots be licensed in the future? Do you think that as AI gains more and more independence, we should have some, say, medical tests or board exams? Oh, you mean for um, compliance uh, or security and privacy? Or what, what's the context? Both and the intelligence of, of the bot. Do you think that there should be, you know, at some point, like a, not maybe a medical school, but say a licensing exam for a chatbot or voice AI bot that it would have passed in order to be able to help to diagnose patients. Yeah, well, that's the word of, of that makes the question more important, diagnose. I'm of the opinion that we will at some point, I suppose, see um, bots actually diagnose, but I'm not sure when that's going to happen. I think it's much more likely, and it is the case that the bots will be collecting information and suggest a potential mm -hmm. diagnosis or several, and that the actual diagnosis and the prescription of treatment associated with that diagnosis will be done by a human. So guided by the input from a bot. And, and uh, but, you know, I, it's a peculiarly, um, it's a peculiar challenge that when you're prescribing a medication i don't know when we'll get to a point when a patient trusts the bot more than they trust a human to say you need to take this medication you know it's already the case that those decisions about what medication what treatment to receive or to to prescribe to somebody who's suffering from some condition have been established by technology by by um uh, uh, AI and natural and machine learning technologies that have said, in this case, this is the best medication to use, probabilistically. 
Um, that's already happening now. It's more like the user experience, right? At the point in time when you and I as patients are asking what we know to be an absolutely fact that what we know to be an artificial intelligence or a virtual assistant is telling us uh, with no other input or no other external forces that this is your diagnosis and this is the treatment. Are we likely to accept that? And I, and I don't know the answer. I don't know when that's going to happen. I just actually asked myself that question, right? Would I, would I be willing to just take the word of a virtual assistant and accept the diagnosis and treatment that comes from that without vetting it with a clinician, a human clinician? I don't know. I'd want to know that there was some something behind it <laughs> that was uh, verifiable, if you will. Yeah. It also seems very awkward for me as a physician to have AI colleague yeah. like doing at some point maybe most of my tasks. But still, if you think about the potential for automating some of the tasks that I don't like to do, then it's really great. Yeah. That really makes me want to use new tech. And also that's why probably I started to build it myself. Have you received this kind of feedback from other providers and from the medical world? Yeah, it's real. And the anecdotal feedback, I have a sister who's a dermatologist, uh, has her own practice. And she's at a point now, like a lot of providers where they're completely switched over to electronic medical record systems. And the unfortunate joke is that, and I don't know, I don't think it's the case with my sister, but a lot of clinicians have to face their laptop versus the patient when they're in doing a visit because they have to enter the information and the patient doesn't really feel the, you know, to talk about empathy, right? You don't feel a lot of connection with somebody who's typing while you're talking. It's a real challenge to try to make sure that the data is being collected and you're doing the right thing from just the tracking point of view. So yeah, it's a real thing. And then uh, just the volume, particularly in the last 12 months, um, I can't imagine what it's been like for people on the front line and dealing with a pandemic in the worst places. Um, again, to you, we're not trying to replace those individuals. What we're trying to do is make their jobs easier so that they're working, like we said before, at the top of their license. They're not mm -hmm. doing data entry. Uh, they're not, you know, sending email reminders to patients about coming in for their appointment. That, um, or, and they're not necessarily even relying on um, their staff to do that. It can just be automated. And um, so that's, I think, it's really not about replacing the expertise and the human component of healthcare. It's really you know, solving those problems of, of overloading them and being overloaded at work, but also not losing the human and the uh, aspect of healthcare, even when it has to be virtualized. We actually received a couple of questions from people who wanted to know more about, you know, building voice AI in, in healthcare. One of the first one was concerning how to build a great voice AI design team. Hmm. Could you speak a bit more about how to create a team of developers around voice slash chatbots uh, interfaces and, and experiences? Is that different from a, from a regular dev team and design team? Well, it's a different set of skills and expertise than pure, you know, development engineering skills. No question about it. I mean, the idea of um, experience design has been around for years. It, whether it's application, traditional applications, web applications, mobile applications, the central challenges and opportunities are the same. How do you create an experience that's going to ensure, you know, the user's satisfaction is optimized and that. Uh, 
goals of the application are met. And in the case of voice and conversational applications, to achieve that requires an understanding of what makes those applications different than traditional digital user experiences. So building a team of experienced designers, and I'll tell you, we're still a pretty small company, so we've got people on staff who have that expertise, but we don't have hundreds. <laughs> we've got a handful. And um, you know what, what's helpful is that some, you know, having somebody who has certainly done it before, there's no substitute for experience because it's the surest way to learn um, how to develop a, an ideal or at least optimal virtual experience is to try to do it once and fail. <laughs> and uh, because it's very easy once you've built it to see when a virtual user experience, a virtual experience, whether voice or chat is effective or not, you can kind of, even if you're not an expert and you can see it. So what we've learned is that you really do need to prototype. So you build a team that knows how to do uh, experience prototyping. It's very helpful. And the tools that will allow you to do that, have somebody who at least is familiar with some examples of tools for doing that. There's also, um, you know, people are familiar with, I might get the phrase wrong, but it's basically sometimes called the Wizard of Oz method of user experience design. You know, conversational user experience design is they literally take two people and one people goes behind the curtain and the other and pretends to be the bot. And the first person is the end user. Mm -hmm. And they speak to the curtain like they would a bot in, in the context of the scenario. And you write down the uh, conversation and you extract from it the, the common patterns of interaction, the, the uh, nature of the conversation, the, the flow, and you model based on that. To build a team, definitely want to find somebody who uh, you know has at least UX experience, has bot-based experience, voice even better, because um, when you add voice as an overlay, as a modality, you have to think about tone and inflection, you know, all the things that aren't necessarily manifest in a traditional bot. I'll tell you candidly, these people are hard to find. You know, finding a good uh, conversational UX person, they're getting more common, but they're yeah. still pretty you know, rare resources. Another person asked us a question about the priorities of healthcare software development in the post-pandemic, post-COVID world. Is there anything specific in terms of a feature or product that people should focus in the post-pandemic world? That might be have emerged as more important than it was pre-pandemic. Well, besides the broad category of virtual health technology, <laughs> within that, I, I would really emphasize um, these uh, outreach campaigns and, pro and delivering of these conversational experiences, these bots through um, proactive. And it doesn't sound like it's that different, right? It's just, are you receiving an email with a call to action or are you going to a website that has a call to action on it? And it may really not seem that much different, but the intersection between these passive virtual assistants that are in the form of an Alexa skill or in the form of a bot on a website with communication, especially patient communication tools and services, I think is the real learning where the opportunities are, um, you know, through the pandemic and beyond. Because I think they're going to be just as relevant, you know, when, when uh, the pandemic settles down. And Nate, what do you think is 
the future of voice AI and, and chatbots, let's say in the next five, 10 and 50 years? Did you say 50 or 15? 50. Listen, I'm not sure I can, <laughs> I'm not sure I can go out 50 years, but uh, we'll only try uh, five to 10. Yeah, I like that question because I'm really of the opinion that the technology that's out there in this category, I'll specifically focus on voice assistant technology, is ahead of the use cases. In other words, the possibilities are there now. And uh, to the extent that they've been tapped is really the question. So one area that um, if you talk to anybody who does voice in healthcare, they'll probably say the same thing. That is very interesting as this idea of voice biomarkers. So voice as a communication technology has the benefit that there's a lot of meaning that's in the words of whatever somebody says, right? So if you ask a patient, you know, how are you feeling today? They might say, well, I feel awful and um, shooting pains down my left arm, right? So that information is loaded that statement is loaded with information that you can pull out. But voice has the other aspect that there's information in the actual acoustic property of people's voices. Mm -hmm. And if you can capture that, which you can't capture if all you're doing is converting their voice to text. But if you keep track of the audio, you can look for other things. You can look for tone and inflection and pitch and um, even uh, slurred speech, right? And the machine learning technology that's out there, the models that are being built now, have, are able to extract information from spoken audio that is um, difficult or near impossible for a human to extract, or most humans. And uh, one example that I like, and I believe this was some research that might have been done by uh, one of the big health systems in the US, where they were able to extract heart rate from about 10 seconds of spoken audio. Yeah. So it turns out if you take, you know, presumably good quality audio, if you're able to uh, just record that audio and you and play back and analyze it. You're looking for a certain overlay in the uh, signature of that audio's file, and you can extract the uh, heart rate of the speaker. And there are other examples. There's many examples in the remote home care scenario. Uh, this one that I, I love where it says that um, for an elderly person living at home, if you do not hear the refrigerator door open, that means they're probably not eating or not drinking. And uh, it's a sign of uh, possible distress or um, at least concern. And uh, it sounds a bit more big brother type of functionality, but uh, it just speaks to what's possible if you have an audio signal and what you can be doing to support somebody who uh, maybe is reporting uh, a symptom or maybe just as an ambient anal analysis of the ambient sound. So I think there'll be some privacy and security things to work out, but uh, in certain circumstances, um, in a hospital setting, that kind of audio, the sound of somebody falling, the sound of a glass breaking on the ground, the technology exists now to be able to use that and trigger an action to make sure that, uh, that you know some disaster can be averted. Do you think that there could be actually a group of people that is going to say, okay, we agree to record like like the whole of our lives, like 24 hours per, per day, because of the fact that they're going to understand the medical benefits of that and the potential outcomes for, for their health and, and for the years to come? Yeah, I mean, there are people who have already agreed to allow sensors to be implanted in mm -hmm. their bodies, right? And uh, it's not a majority of the population. Uh, I don't think it is. 
Um, but, you know, there's always going to be people who are um, interested in it for their own reasons. And it might not solely be because they want to be, um, you know, have higher quality health care. I always say it's really a, a mix of a balance of risk and reward, right? And everybody has a different formula for weighing the risks associated with um, a particular treatment or uh, whatever rewards might come from it. In the case of, say, an 85-year-old person living home alone, they may be more likely to agree to um, a virtual assistant checking in on them on a daily basis, just to know that somebody's checking in on them, even if it's a virtual assistant, whereas maybe a 30- or 40-year-old individual might not be open to that. And, of course, everybody's different. So I think the answer to your question is, yeah, what percentage of the population that represents, I couldn't tell you. Nate, thank you for sharing your views and spending this time with me and with our listeners and I hope to, to see you very soon Thank you Oscar, it was my pleasure If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or just go to our website, digisection.fm. See you next time.